Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. BizSimply is the all-in-one HR workforce management rotor operation software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together we want to share strategies and tools to make the industry thrive long term, not just survive. Well, that's how I run my business because, you know, if you run a band and you've got your guitarist, your singer and your bass player and your saxophonist and your drummer, they've all got to a level of competence. You're not going to micromanage them and tell them how to play the guitar, are you? What you do is you're going to give them some leadership and direction for what playing, what do I need to do? So you're treating them as experts, but you're also giving them guidance and direction. That's the critical point. So when I'm bringing my team together, it's very much on the basis of what skills sets they've got, as opposed to just just turning up and I'm telling them what to do all the time. That is quite important. This is Julian Fries, founder and principal consultant at Nella Davies. Nella Davies is a consultancy Julian started in 2005. After a successful tenure at the BBC, Marriott, Sodexo and Sutcliffe Catering. In 2022, together with Ashford and St. Peter's Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust, they won the Food Service KD Awards. In this conversation, we get great insights into Julian's food service journey and how he's been part of transforming food in hospital. He gives a great overview of the current state of the food and catering services in the NHS and the opportunities there is to improve these. Julian shares the strategies and tactics they have implemented to improve the quality of food in the NSS, especially the importance of ensuring that you involve all stakeholders in the process. We also discuss what steps need to be taken to change food at a systemic level to get better food and catering practices within the NSS and beyond. If you want to get more insights into what Maverick leaders do and know, as well as more backstage info on the show, sign up for the weekly newsletter, Maverick Talk, five minutes each week that could change your leadership and business forever. Find the link in the show notes or on hospitalitymavericks.com. If you want to improve your food offer for your employees and customers, this conversation will give you great insight into achieving this. Enjoy. Welcome to today's conversation. We're actually we're gonna be going into maybe a sector in food service that's not actually always have a shine on. And when the shine is on, in my view, and maybe Julian, that's the guest today, will to tell differently. But I think we have negative, you know, reflection on what happens when we talk food service, hospital food, catering. That's not high quality food as I would get in a very good restaurant, but that's all wrong in my view, because I've been traveling a bit around in that world the last couple of years. As you know, I talked about before on the show, and I think actually it's the sector we need to shine more positive light on. So today we'll talk about Julian because he has some really Uh interesting insights into how you can transform staff and retail catering at an NSS trust or multiples, the why, the how, and the what. 
So with that said, welcome to the show, Julian. I'm really excited that you wanted to join me. I was not 100% sure when I reached out to you if that was possible. But yeah, I'm so glad that we straight off the bat really agreed on this important message to be shared here. Yes, and thanks for inviting me along. And I'm pleased to be part of it. I think there's an interesting story to tell here. Julian, for a bit of context, could you share that your story? The journey you've been on and how you got involved in transforming hospital, food, and retail. Well, I was kind of born into a catering family, so it was kind of, you know, embedded. Well, there's two parts to me, really. There's that bit, and then I'm a musician as well. Mm. So that's why I've been running parallel, but it's quite good because it's quite a side hustle, which has kept me sane for the last <laughs> God knows how many years. But also I've diversified more into facilities management as well, because we look at, I look at large scale projects, you know, serving people, you know, that's the key Mm. thing. Anyhow, I, so going through, you know, early days, I was very much skill focused, chef, waiter, all those kind of things. So I learned the skill because I think that was really important. And maybe because my father came from Europe, become Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia at the time, there's a little bit more of a cultural feel for food than potentially in UK. And I did that about six years, but I didn't do it in the sort of city sector, all the sort of posh stuff. I was more interested in doing something that was a bit more challenging. And I liked the opportunity to do sort something out, do something that that makes a difference to somewhere you would have at least expected it. So I worked for industrial catering. I worked in a car plant. I worked in a baked bean factory. I did that. Some of that was in-house. Some of it was with contract caterer. With the contract caterer, I moved into healthcare because there was an opportunity at, in the early 90s to, they were looking at how they could improve catering, even back then, how they could improve catering services in, in, in hospitals. And I kind of got involved with that in business development and running it. Then the musician thing came in. I took a bit of time out mm-hmm. to do that. Did a bit of a tour. It was very nice. I even went to Denmark, just so to add to that. And then, yeah. and then a, a colleague of mine suggested there was a, some opportunity at the BC. So I came, I, I ducked over the fence to be client side, world service for a couple of years. And then I went to television center, BBC television center, that massive building that well, was kind of, it's a bit different now, but it was an amazing place to work as head of facilities. So that was everything, catering, cleaning, maintenance, everything to support a big broadcasting organization. And at that time, 45% of the BBC's output came from that site. They kind of fragmented it a little bit now. Uh, and then. About 18 years ago, I left on the basis that, well, before that, I came head of catering, actually. That's an important element because they, somebody recognized I was a foodie that I'd worked with, and we had an issue at the organization because like healthcare, BBC canteens were, well, every single program you listen to, watch, whatever, they always made fun of it. And there was an opportunity to sort that out, which we did, you know, did some phenomenal things, which turned it around and gave the staff a lot better service. From there, I then went into consultancy and basically took that kind of troubleshooting into the wider market. And, and I set up my company, Nella Davies, and with the principal focus on healthcare, because I knew that market, some education, government type stuff, so public sector I understood, but also business and industry, because obviously clearly working for an organization, the media organization is very, that, and, and, and my previous experience, plus some kind of sport and leisure we've done a bit of work. 
Stadia and museums and, yeah. you know, well-known places. So we've worked with some great people over the last 18 years. And the good thing about my job is it's different every time, you know, we're doing different things, we're doing procurement, we're doing strategy, we're doing step-ins, we're doing these in-house projects, we're doing all sorts of different things to make a difference. And as we were talking about before, we don't just work here, we work abroad as well. And one of the things I've got more involved with and the reason why I went out to Bermuda recently is that we are involved very interested in vested outsourcing which is a collaborative working technique which is kind of I would say the third way because we've been through we're kind of COVID's kind of drawn a line on what we used to do and what we're going to do now so in the respect of and it's not the first time I've been called a maverick by the way <laughs> because sometimes you've got to do something to change the You've got to change the course of, of, of the way things run. But equally, collaboration is quite critical because that's the way I've always worked. You know, get people together, doesn't matter who they work for, whether it's a, an invoice or a, a paycheck, you're in it together. And that's where, and mm. that brings me right up to date. And obviously we'll talk a little bit more about some of the projects we've been doing, but yes. And I had been working in the industry when I think the first bit of coaching I did when I was nine, you know, a bit of forced labor, my parents get me to do the washing up. But Clearly a good understanding of what's going on. And uh, Julian, your story, you talk about the music as well. What is the, like, mm -hmm. the connection between, you know, music and food? Is there a connection there or is it just two different tracks in your world? Because I can see some connections. Well, that's a good question. Well, clearly not. It's, you know, it's one of those base, I will say basic. It is a fundamental part of the human psyche. We've got to eat and music is an important part. And there's a whole load of other things. If I go for the Maslow triangle, I think that's where we're going. But certainly when I started playing music, probably before I got involved with catering. So, and I just had an aptitude towards it. I just kept going. And the thing for me, there were several things about it. One is I enjoy doing it. It's a great relaxation thing. And we did, and, I, and you know, I've done something with it because we, we had a band for 20 years and that was very successful. In the end, I had a family, we had a family and I, and so I consult, you've got time to that. You get home at three o'clock in the morning after a gig and get five o'clock in the morning because the kids are howling, you know? So in the end, you think that's enough. So I've kept my hand in, you know, I've done a few gigs here, there and everywhere. But the important part about it is it's, it gets to a part of the senses that others don't, you know, and sitting there, I'm sitting there writing documents all the time and that's all very, you know, it's all, yeah, right. But if you can get, if you can get below the surface and actually get to what, you know, the soul, then you're more likely to get better interaction with the people. And, and, and suddenly it's a, it's a, it breaks down barriers and that's what we're trying to do, not just in music, but also in food. Yeah. That is a critical point. There are no hierarchies in that. Maybe if you play better, but I kept yeah. going because I had to go to music lessons and I'd heard Jerry Lee Lewis, Elton John. Uh, little Richard, and then I want to play like that. And that's how I kept going. Otherwise, I'd have probably given that years ago because it was something I really wanted to do. But I think what's interesting is again, you said music. I think it's a bit like an art, and both food and music, in my view, yeah. is art and making people work together, play well together, which is your job yeah. now as a consultant. Yeah. It is really a really good connection with that. I was also really interesting two tracks where they actually stay and complement each other in a way. Well, that's how I run my, well, that's how I run my business because, you know, if you're running a band and I'll just pursue this point a little bit more, if you run a band and you got your guitarist, your singer and your bass player and your saxophonist and your drummer, 
they've all got to a level of competence. You're not going to micromanage them and tell them how to play the guitar, are you? What you do is you're going to give them some leadership and direction for what playing, what do I need to do? So you're treating them as experts, but you're also giving them guidance and direction. That's the critical point. So when I'm bringing my team together, it's very much on the basis of what skills sets they've got, as opposed to just, just turning up and I'm telling them what to do all the time. That's, that is quite important. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was thinking similar thought that, you know, often, you know, you know, in work, you know, you have to approach things like they are banned or they have previous experience and we often get that. We'll come back to that. But one, one other thing I just want to touch on, you know, with Nella Davies as well, was it the mission? What, what is, what kind of change? Because you said you are Maverick. So you have, if you're a Maverick and I know this, what we talked a couple of times is that you have something you want to change in the world. You want to see is different. What is it for you? What is the mission? Well, the mission is about, it's about food and service, stupid. That's it. Because, you know, that's what people want to eat food. They want a decent service. They want to come into an environment that they enjoy. And they go away, one, that they've enjoyed the food they've got. They felt they got value out of it. And it makes their day better. And it makes their life better. That's it. That's, that is fundamentally it. All the rest of it, to be honest with you, Michael, is the processes and the paperwork that you have to do. And I'm quite good at that because I did a degree. And the thing about the degree wasn't you know, much about the content. It was the ability to report things and write report on all the stuff that you have to do, because a lot of my clients have come through the same route. So that's the kind of de facto way of doing it. But it, as long as you do that and you do an action based and you can demonstrate that you're in a much better position. So it's about communication, isn't it? In the end, and the best way of getting through to the decision makers. And I've been lucky because I think I've been a bit more in tune than some others trying to get that message across. It doesn't mean to say it works every time, I have to say, because, you know, with, you know, some places to go to, it just ain't going to ever work. It's never going to work if you haven't got the right people there. But I have to say most times when we're doing these projects, whatever they are, you get a good relationship. And I mean, let's face it, over 70% of our projects are retained, referred, or we're rehired. So that's a good validation of our ability to deliver what people want at any level. I love the idea about you say that the mission is very simple. It's just to make people's day a little bit better. And you can influence that with going in, putting in structures or helping people think differently. But more important, I think you said collaborating. We mm -hmm. need to get people to collaborate because they already have most of the skills. Is that also what makes you different? You think in the work you do is that you have this bottom-up approach when you go in, you get the whole organization involved, all the stakeholders as necessary to get the job done? I don't think I'm different than any other of my colleagues because they've all got the same thing in mind. It's just the approach that we take might be slightly different and slightly uh, you know, engaging with the people we deal with. Well, bearing in mind, quite a lot of the work we do is in the hospital sector and that has been traditionally difficult. Now, I like difficult because that's the point where you can make the most amount of difference. And, you know, when I've tried to make changes in car factories and baked bean factories, as I was saying, or the BC, which are high profile organizations, particularly the last one, and we've been successful, then why not the health service? And I know that organization for 30 years. And, you know, there's people in that organization are very sensible and sane. They're just part of a massive conglomerate, if you like, or a social institution, which is unwieldy. And sometimes it's conflicting messages and it's all a bit too cost focused as opposed to 
value or outcome focused, and that is critical. But look, we can talk a little bit more about how we can how we how we deal with that. But fundamentally, it's I, I there was in fact the director general of the BC when I was there was mostly a guy called Greg Dyke, and he was controversial in himself, as probably the listeners will know. And but he had his straightforward mantra was make it happen. In fact, it started off with cut the crap, make it happen. All right. And he said, look, do what you think's right, because with too much stuff being thrown at us, we've got to fill this in, do that, everything else. But as long as I don't end up in court and all these other kind of things. So it was quite a simple message. And that suddenly you get thrown, oh, that's great. I love that kind of stuff. But not everybody can process that because they have, like, I've got to have a process. I've got to, I've got to go through every, I've got to go through this, that, and the other. And you're going, no, you don't. You can define your own process. You can do a gap analysis and say, this is what you got now, and this is where you're going to go, and this is how we're going to do it. But at the fundamental part of it, make it happen and do it and put it out on the plate or get the customers through the door or whatever it's going to be. Same as the music, because the same as the music, you don't go along and play all your favorite stuff because they probably all hate it. You've got to play what the audience are going to dance to. Yeah, it's just. I know it's a bit crowd pleasing and playing to the gallery, but sometimes that works. Yeah. And I, I love again, when you make the, uh, you know, connection over the music, because I think some of the most successful bands in history, you know, horse singers, Bruce Springsteen and the E street band, Metallica, Rolling Stones, they go and do the job every day. They don't go and probably do always what they want to do. They do what the audience want and they continue doing that. And that's like, I think it's a great analogy sometimes see, and they stayed together for decades, probably not always been fun, but they really stayed together and have kept a consistent business in all the drama. But coming a bit back to you and your experience with Arctic, because I alerted a bit to it in the beginning that, you know, catering services, especially hospital feed doesn't have the most awesome you in the public. Could you give us a bit like an overview of what is the status and what are the challenges and the priorities when it comes to that? And then maybe dive into some of the projects you have done and some of the, uh, the transformation we've seen. Well, the issue with the NHS catering is it's poorly focused, fragmented, cost focused, commoditized. I'll just write these words down because they just come, you, just, you, think, you ask me the question, like, let's just bung some words down, outdated, expensive. So what we've got in the, it, it, so. I've been involved with this at, from a critical point and I got involved in it at the point when they created these trusts and trusts were the government decided they didn't want all the responsibility or wheeling back to the department of health, that they created these individual trusts and let's face it, these trusts ain't small, 450 million pound turnover, another one, Bart's we work for 3 billion or whatever it's going to be. You are talking about large organizations. So I could understand why they wanted to decentralize and of course as you know in those organizations are decentralized centralized go backs and forwards because that's the business cycle but at that particular point there was a there were some fundamental things that changed and i think quite a lot of people hadn't haven't realized that the food before that was not very good and some of the state uh, the, the standards you saw in the kitchen were shocking defrosting chickens in the hand wash basin cockroaches running around the floor chef standing there in sandals having a fag at the smoke at the end of the cooker and that, it was shocking yeah, so let me just say it has got better in the last 30, 40 years. Maybe not where we think it should be, but it's safer. All right, that is a fundamental issue, and I want to make that clear. 
So at, I think it was 1991, I think that was the critical date, 1990, 1991, something like that, that before then, all healthcare organizations and other public sector organizations had what they called crown immunity, which meant they weren't subject to food safety act and all those mm. things. So, you know, the EHO, the environmental health officer come around. So, you know, that was it. You're on your own. Of course, when they came along, it all changed. That then spurred off this massive food safety industry monitoring and all that kind of stuff. So that was right. So, and then the other thing that came about, and this is how cook chill and cook freeze became the dominant player. And, and this is an interesting story. It came about because the cost of remediating the kitchens to do hot, fresh cooking and let alone all the issues of distributing it over large areas in, in, in poorly insulated equipment and all the other stuff that goes with it just became uneconomic. At which point we, that the opportunity, there was a couple of these central production units that started thought, oh, it's an opportunity here. And at that time, the food was really good. Yeah. And it was some really good stuff coming out. And so, well, let's bring that in. And they started replacing well, the hotline services it called with this sort of chill of oh, mostly chill. It wasn't frozen so much then. And the other thing is, and other people have forgotten, we knew there was a demographic crisis then star. We knew at that particular point that in the past, up until 1990 and all the impacts of Chupi and all the other kind of stuff that's kind of wheeled in, that the star was more like, I don't know, I said, and probably criticized me saying this, but NHS like a medieval estate, you know, so you've got the, you've got the barons at the top, you've got the, you've got the knights and all that lot. And then you've got the, you know, the, the serfs or whatever else below that. And, you know, but it was like a, it was like a hereditary thing, you know, you, 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 mother, daughter, father, son, they'd all, you know, in, in the local mm. area. Just, so you always had a, a constant supply of staff. You had other groups that came in and post-war, there was quite a few Polish and Italian and Portuguese and so forth that came in to help that. And of course they kind of, in some respects, helped the service because they, you know, they, they, they're cooking, some of their cooking skills were probably better, arguably. Um, but, uh, but we knew at that particular point that we weren't necessarily going to press because at that time there was a big push for kids coming out of school to go to university and they don't want, didn't want to go and do the same thing that dad or mum used to do. They wanted to go and get a degree in thermodynamics or something like that and go and do that. So consequently lock that out. But because we were at that time in the European Union, we had access to, you know, open trading. We had access to staff from across Europe. They were attracted in. Great. Fantastic. So we had 30 years of fun and excitement of which that all kind of came to a, a grinding halt with Brexit. And then as it's gone on, then we got into PFI. So I got quite involved in the public finance or public private finance initiative, where it was a kind of joint venture building new hospitals because a lot of the hospitals are Victorian, they were all old field hospitals that were built during the war and they're still there 50 years later, dilapidated and pretty miserable. So they built these new hospitals and went, well, given all these things that are going on, what's the point of putting a kitchen in? Cause we can't staff it. And. You know, the companies are out there at that time, Tillery Valley, at that time, they're gone now, but Tillery Valley, there was Brakes, the Elmdale brand, and we had Anglia Crown. They kind of all started around that time. They kind of stepped into the breach. And it all, from an economic perspective, it all makes sense because you can keep costs down because they'll send producing all that kind of stuff. Anyhow, as time went on, we found that since went and it was just a central production, so uh, the distribution units 
And that is why you see quite a lot of that in hospitals now. And in a lot of cases, no way back because to rebuild a kitchen is going to be quite mm. difficult. Yeah. Now, take 30 years of various governments bickering and fighting and trying to find money and all the other stuff. We, it is constantly played. The NHS, like every other public sector organization, is constantly played by cost improvement programs. And everything, each time, every cycle, and it went obviously outsourcing, producing costs to a point of no return because at that particular point, you just cannot produce the quality of food that you need. And we've seen over the years, margins have gone down, quality of food's gone down, and consequently, you get what you get. Overlaid with the fact that because they have difficulty getting staff or it's very fragmented the way it's served in the hospitals, you find that all sorts of people are serving. There's nobody's at the place we've been to. Nobody is in charge of catering fully. They're in the kitchen picking and packing, as they call it, stick it in the trolleys, push it out the door, don't see it again. They have no responsibility for what's happening. The other, this is still happening, Michael, because we went to a hospital recently and 53% wastage. Now, if you wow. add that, and that's because the food wasn't very good, it wasn't served properly, it was temperature issues. Anyhow, that, in financial terms, is a shocking a million pound a year, because if you add up, the cost of the food that's thrown away. And that's food that's not served, not eaten. So it might be partially eaten or whatever. It's everything that's not consumed. It's the, it's the cost of the labor wasted, pushing that around the site. Yeah. And you, then you've got to add in the distribution costs, the energy costs, you know what I mean? Million quid. Yeah. Thank you very much. And then you multiply that across a load of different trusts. Now, some are better than others. I am not because there's a lot. There's some dedicated people out there we know are making an effort and pushing that thing. And I'm on that. I'm on the NHS food panel where Phil Shelley's the chair. Prue Leith is leads, you know, the sponsor, I guess. And we're not, but, you know, and, and through that, at least there's been a commitment by the government on the NHS England to do something about it. And equally, they've done similar things in Scotland and in Wales and in Ireland as well. So, you know, it's not just, it's not just England. But, you know, there is a definite will to sort it out, but it takes so long. So we've had to try and find ways to fail to break that cycle. And that I think is what we can look at next. But I just think it's interesting just to look at the history that it's a, well, it's not a comedy of errors. It's because everybody's doing it from a helicopter view. We need catering. It's a sunk cost. It's a distress purchase. No, no, no. We're not interested in what's on the plate. And it was an, an intro, it was a, quite an amusing one. We did a tender a few years ago and the CFO was a bit of a difficult character, but I got him with, I, I managed to break him down in the end of the, the and we had a good chat. He said, thanks Julian. That was a fantastic bit you did for us. You, you saved me 800,000 pound a year. That's exactly what I need. Da, 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 da. He said, but why is it so expensive in the canteen? I said, I think you've just answered your own question. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's, you can't have now for now, you know, the cost is the cost. That's it, you know, and I think we've gone, but we've gone well below that. And we've seen a number of failures. We've got quite a geopolitic market in frozen food supply, and we're kind of challenging that. Again, that's something I can talk to a little bit more. It's just an interesting forum to express that. And on the, on the service provider side. You know, they're just pushed down to, you know, the, the lowest something large as they get is, is, is pretty poor. There's no incentive. That's the point. They just have to turn up and then they've got to work with a, a, a poor resource pool. 
It's just difficult. Yeah. So, so still challenged as the history of like challenging and food has been an afterthought, you say as well, in, in the NHS trust. Yeah. And then I guess also it, there's the whole like the setup. There's no setup and there's not enough resources to do it well, or it's definitely challenging. Can you talk a bit more about, you talked a bit about like the chill and frozen, just to clarify for people out there. So when mm-hmm. they produce food in a hospital, you said there's, there's principle no scratch cooking in most places. That's what you're saying. They would get mostly food from the outside. They have to combine in some kind of way. So ready-made sources, frozen products that take in and defrost, or is there places that are still able to do from scratch cooking in hospitals? Yeah, there's a bit either the specific number, I would say it's less than half. I think they're still doing it. It, it works better when you've got decent equipment and a smaller hospital because the footprint is mm. quite difficult. When you're, you know, some of these hospitals who work in half a mile long corridors, time you get to the end, and then some of the poor practices we've seen where they sort of plate up the stuff early, shove it in the trolley, and then, you know, sitting there for three hours before even the patient gets it. You know, that, that's not good. And of course, the other thing is, you know, effectively in the hospitals, to me, if you've got 30 wards, you've got 30 restaurants and you've got 30 restaurants, the standards should be the same in every flipping restaurant, but we've incentivized just they can play off each other. But there's all things about calibration. There's also all, all sorts of things that, that come into play. But one of the most important things is that uh, has come out of some of the research we've done recently. It is less, it, so the important bit is the service. And we have this concept called the last nine yards. The last nine yards is the bit from the trolley to the patient serving them properly, not bunging it down and walking off. This is about care. Yeah. Mm. As you would in any restaurant. The other one is this thing called power of three and the power of three is the caterer, the dietitian, and the nurse. They have to work together because a patient lying in bed, whilst most of the time the caterer can serve food and they're absolutely fine. There are eating difficulties. And if you've been to hospitals, have this red tray system where, you know, they need assistance in, in eating and, you know, and the dietitian to make sure that the patient gets the right nutrition. And that alone, the fact is acts as the, as the, uh, what's the word filter for their diets. So they don't get something that's going to give them a secondary infection or give them an mm. allergic reaction. You know, so if they're, and that can be done, you know, that can be done face to face or it can be done on sort of help desk type thing. But anyway, the thing is, you've got those guys working together, you've got more chance of doing it, but leave the caterers to do the logistics because they know what the hell they're doing and get the nurses and the dietitians to do what they're doing. And the other piece, which is, this is the bit we need to sort out is the logistics because we've all heard about lean management and this is about, let's look at the, and we're looking at this quite closely is invest. Get the wastage down, invest some of that money back into the food so you've got better food out there, and then seek to find your economies in the way it's served to the patients. Because you know what? It's about, I mean, depending on where you're looking, it, the figures we got, 17, 18 pound per patient per day. That's a lot of money. Isn't it? And if you look on mail online, you see the food they're serving there. So Clearly there is a phenomenal opportunity and we focused on the wrong bit. It's all about how much that cost. It's all siloed, you know, as opposed to let's, what's the total cost of it <laughs> and how can we get the best out of it? And my final question is, would your mother eat this? And that's always the, that's the acid yeah. test, you know, it so, is, so, yeah. so, 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 so Julian, if you then 
So now we have an overview with some of the challenges, talk about your talks on some of the initiatives you're doing. If you like, should give us like a, maybe last time we talked, took me a bit of a journey on you went in to a trust and you got um, engaged and you made a transformation there. Can you talk about that in, in big milestone, what happened in the early days, in the middle of the project and what the outcomes was in the end and what's happened since you, you did that initial project? Because that was under the pandemic, as I remember, you were involved right. in something. This is the famous St. Peter's Hospital. Now, we'd been working with Ashman St. Peter's Hospital Trust for a couple of years, and they were wanting to go down, the, well, they had some new construction going in, and they wanted to go down a more retail route for their staff catering. There was a patient catering aspect to it, but let's just focus on the staff bit on this in particular. And because what they had there wasn't that good, but because they were kind of locked into this procurement cycle that you've got to go out and bid every five years, seven years, and you have to put a specification out there. We did a competitive dialogue, which is probably the most open way of doing a procurement exercise. So we get better ideas. It was very much focused on retail offers. So in that mm. you would have seen a well-known supermarket, you know, and you'd have seen a well-known coffee brand, and you would have seen a well-known news agents. I'm not going to promote them because they all know who they are. The fact is that, you know, in the meantime, they had a star restaurant. And in fact, they took that away because they sold off half their land to do something else. So they ended up with a smaller space, but the smaller space wasn't an issue because the food wasn't that good. So people weren't really that upset about it. And in mm. fact, to a point, they might have even closed it down if there was less people going to use it. COVID then rolled in and of course, in every single commercial model we dealt with, not just in healthcare, business part, business and industry, because we were dealing quite a lot across the board. So we looked at the, these supermarkets and all that kind of stuff. And what we found was that they had a staff restaurant, which wasn't making money. And at the point where the COVID hit, the commercial deal wouldn't work. We saw that right across the board in different organizations. And we agreed to go cost plus. So that became a cost constraint to the trust. And what we experienced was the food wasn't getting any better. The operator then, because they weren't putting decent food out and people weren't using it, the costs were going up, obviously, weren't they? So they came back to us and said, we need another 9% to this service. Yeah. And we said, or my client said, okay, well, tell us what you're going to give us. What are you going to give us for this extra 9%? And I have never seen such a pathetic document presented back in terms of what they were going to do, at which point we said, right, our suggestions, we bring it back in house. And, and it was like, oh God. And we had eight weeks to do it. Yeah. Eight weeks. So, and it was like, well, are you going to do it? And I thought, how am I going to do it? So because we deal with lots of different organizations, and the first thing I wasn't going to do was go and knock on the door of another healthcare cage and say, can you step in and do it for us? No disrespect, but we wanted to make some absolute change. Now, when we sat down and thought about a blank sheet of paper, look, this is an opportunity. You haven't got a lot of time. Let's do something that's going to be meaningful. And so I, when I look at the NHS, and I, let's forget about the politics. Let's think about the people. The people are professional people like lawyers and accountants and media people and anybody else that's working in the city, whatever else. And you go into those organizations as we do, and the quality of food is phenomenal, isn't it? It's really good restaurant quality, 
they have to do it because it attracts people to work for them, doesn't it? Because, you know, a big magic circle law firm, you know, that's very expensive when people leave. And half the time, they may leave over a work point, but they're more likely going to be out of the conditions they're working in. And if you've got a decent restaurant, people are going to go, well, that's really good. So I see the clinicians exactly the same with one added benefit. They save people's lives. And you're going, well, mm. just before we started, we had this point when the industry was giving away this, obviously emptying its store cupboards and putting it out there and the quality of food that was coming in. And it was well appreciated, over appreciated because they had all sorts of issues. But we said, well, there's people that engage with that. We can do that. We're not going to go free. What we're going to do is come up with a value-driven offer, which is a Mediterranean-style, healthy, focused-type menu. And how are we going to do that? At that particular point, we were, uh, we, I spoke to contract caterer, Bartley Mitchell, BM caterers as they are now, and I said, all your chefs are driving me mad because every time I pick up Instagram, all I see pictures of sourdough loaves, which means they're bored. Do you want to get people to come and help us on this particular project? Because six months ago, you'd have told me to go away. I'm not interested in the healthcare market. But right now, this could be an interesting opportunity. So they didn't work for the trust. They came and worked for Nella Davis on an associate basis for three months. And we worked through the mobilization. And in the end, we had six weeks because obviously the first couple of weeks were just sorting that out. Six weeks and we hit the ground running in, I think it was October, 2020, and it's been running for three years since. Now on the menu is, as I've said, Mediterranean star food, big focus on the salad bar, big focus on, on, on special events. So, you know, it's not just the food that goes on the counter and it's very, you know, it's very good, you know, very good choice and very healthy, but also on pop-ups and thing, you know, they have ice cream machines in there, there's barbecues, they have all sorts of stuff going on. And we were lucky because one of the guys, Ralph. He, he was working for Barnum Mitchell and he took the opportunity to work for the trust actually stepped up and said, this guy knows what he's doing. We're going to, we're going to, we want to retain him. And that was the best decision they made because he's now there and he helps us on other projects actually. But the fact is, if we look at the, the bottom line takings, he's tripled the revenue into two and a half years, more than half the subsidy. Yeah, satisfaction's gone up exponentially. Average spend's gone. I mean, when we've even put the prices down, so it's four quid for a meal there, four quid, and I, and he's got some mm. cheaper options. But the thing is that, it, 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 and they can't take it away. It's now. It is part of the. It's all part of the of the offer. And when we started, the CEO, chief executive, it's, it's a different lady now, but she said it like, "I've got to have something because this hospital's in Chertsey, and Chertsey is." kind of out there, the only local healthcare workers are consultants, you know, because it's quite a podge area and I need catering. So I need something that's going to support the recruitment of clinicians and, you know, just drag them into London. And I, and that has worked. And certainly mm -hmm. now people, it, I, you have to go on Twitter or Instagram or all the others, they're just posting up stuff and it, it, they've got a fan club now. It's brilliant. And there was one amusing one, Uber Eats, I think, contacted to say, oh, can you, can you be one of our kitchens? I think the trust said no, but it was just quite amusing. That, yeah. And when you look at the food and you look at the services, it's, I even show my business and industry clients, and they go, we want that. So mm. this is about proper food and service. And 
The other piece is that the staff were very demotivated because they had no direction. They were just cooking, shoving stuff in a fryer, and it was all very poor quality. But they suddenly got all into this, and they, you know, we got a couple left. And they all got into it and they all got enthusiastic. And we did some engagement work as well, just to get them on board, to, to listen to what their concerns were and listen to them, their views and get their ideas. Yeah. And they transformed. And it, it, it couldn't believe you have to go now and try it. But the fact is, if you can get in, it is even. <laughs> and subsequently, we've done another project at St. George's, a much bigger hospital. And within three or four months, we have doubled the revenue, halved the cost. We've in, uh, we just had the customer survey back, which when we did it last time was in sort of mid sixties. It is the high now about 84%, which is the highest customer survey score I've ever got in any staff workplace, workplace dining facility. It's just amazing. And it is because we've listened to the people. We helped them. We've mentored them. We've come up with stuff that people like, and the fact is that the customers are engaging prudently with the staff because they love everything that's going on. So, you know, it is a fundamental formula and suddenly the people that are dispossessed and low engagement scores, they're volunteering to do stuff and get involved. We just talked about a load of the staff are going to do another pop-up now. They're going to do it because we could have gone outside, but because they got different cultures, they're going to come along and do their thing, which is amazing. So it's theirs. They, they like it, but it's cost-controlled. It is not that out of the box, you've got to deliver this amount of money. And if not, you're going to have to, you know, it's your risk. This is, you have to have faith in the fact that if you look after your customers, they'll look after you. That is the fundamental difference. That's, you know, because like you're thinking about is we, every food operator's dream to get like revenue numbers like that. What is it around the menu you would say specifically changed? Like what's the more fresh ingredients? What's it? locally sourced, how did that, because I guess it's around that menu design and choice. This. Right. So we listened to the customers. They said, we want our salad bar back. Well, the salad bar they had was miserable for sure. The St. George's one. Let me take the St. George's one. Cause that's, I've just been talking about that with my client and, and, and that's an exciting project there. Cause it was probably worse than St. Peter's if I was to be honest with you. They had a salad bar and they were serving about 20 people a day. Well, since we updated it, 300, more than 300. I'll tell you, it's like locusts. And, and what people like about it is it has, it, you know, you can get a bowl of salad for two quid. It's amazing value. Now we kick the protein separate because otherwise it's blown the bank, but that is working really well. And of course you can go into the restaurant and get your meal there. It's 450. And you're not constrained to have chips or, or whatever else. You can have a salad. You can have, there are chips available, but they're not as prevalent. And the amount of, we sell more salads and chips now because people go, I really like that. And the concept is that each counter has, there's a, is a plant, plant-based, you know, vegan, vegetarian type option. And it's interesting stuff. It's not just the same old, you know, we, I think yesterday had a char-grilled courgette and manchego burrito, which is, you know, with some sour cream and it's brilliant. The other counter had a chili con carne with brisket, you know, not mince. It was a properly made restaurant quality with all the add-ons. And the other choice was a turkey schnitzel. Now, although none of those, you might've got a chili con carne, but it would have been something that would have been pretty 
ropey in the past. Yeah. And then you move around as a delicatessen, delicatessen we call that, and it's got your pies, your pasties, I don't pasties, they're scotch eggs. They have, they have a roast, so you can do hot rolls. They have the chips and they have all sorts of other things. So it's that kind of, if you fancy more of a snacky type lunch, that's where you get that from. Salad bar, we're running out of space. We need to spend more money on it. But at the moment, I think everybody's quite happy with the facility as it is. And certainly when we got the feedback from the customers is, because this, I guess it's in Georgia's, there's over 200 cultures. Now we're not specifically cooking to individual culture because that has been impossible. But if they, if the customers appreciate the fact that they can go and pick something, whatever their tastes are, and that certainly was loud and clear that you are catering for our needs, which is brilliant. And the place is packed every day. We're working on that to expand it, to make sure people get the service 24 seven through smart bridge technology and some other ways of doing it and just and making it more efficient in, in, in the way people want to use it. But to double the revenue or more is quite impressive can, given the fact on the site, there's also a, a convenience store, again, well-known. There's also a high street coffee shop. There's also, there's two high street kind of coffee sandwich shops on there. And we're kind of eating into their business. And the fact is that one of the, one of the comments that come out, I've been here 20 years and I've never used the canteen until now. I used to bring my own food in. Yeah. So there you go. That's, it's just, this is took the food shits. Let's put the food out and don't get sidetracked into all sorts of other issues. And, but you've got to bring the people with you because there's no point in me just, you know, us shaking a stick and do this, that, and the other, you have to deliver. So there's quite a lot of pressure to make it happen. But you know, each time we go, my God, it's worked. Now, mm. not everywhere we go, that always happens because for whatever reason, there are people who put barriers up because they're nervous, anxious, and they don't let things happen. But just, you know, stand back and let the people know what they're doing, sort it out. And, you know, and again, at St. George's, we're collaborating with other organizations, but it makes no difference because if we outsourced it, there'll be a lot of resistance. But the fact is that we're working with select expert partners. It's one team collaboration. Yeah. And I love that whole idea about, you know, you talk about involving people also give them, you know, freedom to operate and do their job. And that's actually the secret. It's not the budget. It's not all those things. It's actually getting people involved in solving the problems and not coming from the top with a number and say, this is what we need to do catering for. What if we take it up, like take it up on a more systemic level we talk about because that's brilliant stories but really what we need to do is transform the food industry it's not just hospitals i guess it's many places as you said you had other clients but also for business and industry companies say i want that in my office or in my facility so what is that we need to do what is that we need to do this change what is like what is the beliefs we need to change i guess it always starts with beliefs and then action well, look, in the market, don't get me wrong, it is not all doom. There's a lot of activity there. We're, you know, we're working in, in, in some other B&I situation. There's some good companies coming up who know this. They know how to do it. And, you know, we're encouraging them to bid for work and get involved, you know, in delivering that service. So we are encouraged by that. And we have to make sure that to, in, to incubate these, this good practice, that you don't jump on them 
with all the law, the legal stuff, all the indemnifications that they've got to sell their house if they don't serve a carrot on time. You know, that kind of stuff. That stupid micromanagement rubbish that it just gets in everybody's way. We don't need it. But what you do, but you've got to, and I understand why it happens is because people have been let down and they've been let down by the process. So the answer to your question, Michael, is the flipping process, isn't it? It's why the hell are we buying catering like a bag of cement? You know, why are we going through or a singular item, a box? It is not a box. Everybody's a catering expert. So you've got to turn it on its head and get them involved, which we do. And you then set up the process where you want to get the right operator in who's got the right cultural fit for your organization. There's no point in, and this is what was happening, particularly in the public sector, because it's all a bit of a, you go and look in the contracts finder, I'm Jim, as used to be called, and you go, oh, there's this contract at such and such hospital or this prison or whatever else. I'm going to bid for that. And I've already got the algorithm. I'll know how to get through there because I know how to get the quality scores to where I need them to be. And I can manipulate my finances to get over the line. How many times I've seen that? Well, I've been business fellow. I'm talking about how that works. But of course, what happens is they get in and then there's a bum fight because they've underbid or whatever else. And, and that's where it all falls apart because the trust is gone. And it's this, you know, you set this up, they've responded, it's all loose. So. The way through that is to say, tear that up and let's go down a more collaborative working route. And that's the reason why vested interestedly, because at that particular point where we've seen is about, there's over a hundred of these deals now in, in globally. That's not massive. Amount, but certainly they are big, hard hitting stuff. When you see BP and Jones Lang, the cell, you've got Johnson and Sodexo, you've got a whole host of them. I is quite heavily involved with it. Anyway, the thing is, and this is about, we're getting into a room together to co-create a contract based around five business rules, you know, and those business rules are actually quite common sense aspects because it's about outcome-based business model, right? It's not about inputs or outputs. It's about get rid of the transactions. What do we actually want as an organization? Critically, the total cost of operation, not the individual cost of the carrot. Second one is about focus on the what, not the how. So how are we going to do it? Because I'm telling you how to do it in my specification. Well, what do we want? What's that look like? And let's sit down together and work out what food do we want. And that's the approach we've taken at St. George's and St. Peter's. You know, we turned it on its head. Clearly defined and measurable desired outcomes. So this is all worked through. You talked about mission. You talked about you know, clear objectives, all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of work I was doing a couple of weeks ago in Bermuda. It was more of an FM contract, but the whole, you know, after a couple of hours of skepticism, suddenly, oh, we're getting this now. We're part of this. This is part, you know, we have some ownership. We have some skin in the game now. We're not just factors of production. They've just been kind of dictated to command and control type approach, you know, fundamentally. The hierarchical thing's gone as more matrix approach, like my band. You know, suddenly you're a chef. Is you know, somebody needs to give them guidance what to cook, but I'm not telling you how to flipping cook. Because if you can't cook, you shouldn't be here in the first place. Yeah, so that, you know, that's a fundamental, isn't it? But if you can cook, you can follow a recipe and you can do you can do stuff. And and I've got some good examples of that as well. Pricing model with incentives. So instead of so in public sector context, what happens? You bid on this, and if you haven't delivered the food 
at seven minutes past 11 every day at uh, 82 degrees Celsius. And uh, I'm going to take a load of, I'm going to take your shirt, your house, your dog and everything else. Yeah. So it's deduction based mentality. And of course everybody. And so what happens is that they just steal the money from another part. So you take that now, you're going to pay for it later. So instead, why don't we just do it the other way around? Why don't we just incentivize people? So one particular project that we worked on, and it wasn't the healthcare one, but it was in the public sector. We said, Here's the, well, we have to put a cap on it because we can't just spend any amount of money because, you know, there's an accountability thing. But if you underachieve the cap, i.e. positively, we split the benefit three ways. Third goes back to the service provider so they can, they get more money out of it. And this is based on openness. This is based on an open and transparent contract, isn't it? Uh, so that's about you open your books. We'll do a mutual contract, but you're not going to hide all your overriders and all your discounts. You're going to tell us exactly how much it's going to cost. Yeah. And, but we'll incentivize you if you do a better job. So it's about the quality of the food and service on, you know, what you're getting on the plate. The other, and the third piece, or second piece goes back to the client. So they get a third back. And the third bit goes back to the staff. So mm. the staff suddenly think, great. Now, obviously they've got to be managed and they can't just overdo it, but certainly, and where we've done this before, we did in a legal firm, sometimes the money may only be a small amount, but what they do then is just invest in a staff party or some event to bring people Ooh. together. You know, thank you very much. So all I've just, all we've done is invented the trunk, but it's, it's a good way of keeping people on board. And the final one is good governance based on openness and transparency. Every project we run has project boards, steering groups, all that kind of stuff, because you need that level of accountability because people have got to be communicated with. You've got to measure it. Are we where we need to be at this time? Julian, although if you were like with all this journey you've been on and you would like people have been listening in and there's some leaders listening to this and thinking, I want to bring some better food to my people. Where should they start? Where's the, what is the top advice? Where do we start? when we want to make this transformation. Go and find out what people want. Go and talk to your staff. Go and find out. Do a survey. Go do the shoe leather around the building. And, you know, we just, it, that was a good one. We did a requirement survey for an office building just outside London. And we just did a requirement survey. And there's 900 people in the building and half of them responded. Because quite clearly, there was a strength of opinion that actually didn't want to go to the local convenience store, bring their own food in. They wanted it there. They wanted their own space. Mm. And that came out loud and clear. And one comment that came back, is says, thank you for asking. Aha. Uh -huh. Interesting. Yeah, because often people are not even asked or when they ask no. sometimes, or no. they're not listened no. to as well. That's, that's second point. Oh. Sorry. Sorry. Now, second point is do market engagement, market engagement exercise. Have a look. Well, walk. Just walk around the area and just get your Google map and do some concentric circles. Easy stuff. You know, what's in five minutes walk, blah, 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 blah. Let's find out. You find out how much they're prepared to spend in that survey. You find out what they're bringing at the moment. You look at the front door, see what people are bringing in. You walk around the, the offices and see what they're eating in their hubs and kitchens and so forth. And then, then, then you go to the market to find out if anybody's prepared. What are the companies doing? So you talk to the big guys and going, yeah, they could do that. Talk to smaller guys, they could do better, and then think, right, well, now we're more confident that we can actually do something. And that can work in any environment. It's not just, you know, it's because healthcare or, or education or whatever is kind of locked into these public rules, but 
They're not as inflexible as I kind of always suggest. Then you go out and do a tendering exercise, but it's more of a collaborative dialogue-based one where you get the people, you know, get the companies that you want and get the get some stakeholders involved as well. And they produce their, they come up with their offer. We look at it, we go, right, well, I know it's good. Cultural fit is important. There's no point in us onboarding somebody who they're going to hate. You've got to have the catering that they like. So the way we do that is we cut, what is get again, more engagement. And when we get to the end of, or towards the back end of the process, we then go to the companies where they've got a contract already. Come on and we'll come and eat your food. We're just going to turn up as a customer and we'll talk to you and let's see if it's any good. Talk to the client, see what you think. And then that really informs us. We have in the past a company, there were two companies really close to a legal firm up in Manchester. <laughs> we had two bidders and one of them was slightly ahead. Yeah. But the last test was we gave both of them an opportunity to cook a particular menu on their hospitality. And we would assess them on that. And I had a chef working on me. So it was, you know, and he kind of designed that out. Anyhow, the leading company dropped the ball big time. Whereas the stalking horse one come up with a phenomenal hospitality offer. And I mean, that's it. So, so the other company lost it. So, you know, clearly they can write all the pretty words and put all the fantastic pictures and all the other stuff. In the end, it's about the food on the plate. It's like, it's great fun then, because you, then you're looking at what the company can really do. And it gets about, you know, the food and then also that experience that comes along and deserves that, the hospitality experience. Yeah. Here in one last question for you, Julian, is the one question you wish I asked you, I didn't do. And what would that question be? And what will you answer? Oh, I've got a good one. I've thought yeah. long and hard about this. I've thought long about this. Is in, will anybody listen to you and do anything <laughs> about it? Was <laughs> he just so ranting? Was he just say ranting just for the sake of making a particular point, or is it something that you can actually achieve? Yeah. What is the answer? Well, the answer is I think we kind of it's, it's, it goes back to the Greg Dyke thing, isn't it? You know, cut crap, make it happen. The fact is that people. You know, they're all experts in food. We're all experts in food, but we're, we also want to be educated. We want to know a bit more and we're all more open-minded to different tastes and styles. Some of us aren't, we eat the same thing every day. That's not a problem at all. Uh, you know, if you want to eat a ham and cheese toasty, that's fine. But if you want to try shawarma or, or some kind of, I don't know, fancy French dish, I don't know, it doesn't matter. And what we're seeing actually is in, in one of our other and we're you know, there's meal deals for people that are on a low budget. So you're meeting where it's not just rubbish. It's just brought out of the fridge because it's cheap. It's stuff mm. that's, you know, because people, you know, it's going to be nutritious and, and deliver the goods. But equally on the other end, we have a premium meal deal as well. So if people want to up game once a week, it gives that opportunity to do that because what happens is otherwise they just go out, they'll go to a, you know, a casual dining restaurant and have that experience. Mm. But if they think, oh, you know, if they want to entertain their staff, you know, or ceremony or just a nice thank you, you know, it's quite nice. I mean, but one place we went, they had afternoon tea, all that kind of stuff. So, but would anybody listen to me? Well, I think they have. And I think particularly with these uh, several projects we're running, St. George's, St. Peter's, Breakspear Parks, another one, another job we did up in, in Norfolk. 
a whole load of them that we, what we've, we've put together have been very successful. In fact, my final one is a place we did about 10 years ago, which was a, it was the Royal College of General Practitioners. And they were based up near the Albert Hall in a building that was just too small for them. They decided that they were going to move to a new building, well, a, a recondition, a, a building they were going to recondition down by Euston Station. This place was a dump, by the way, because it was just completely, it was derelict after the Camden County. We used to left it back to five years previously. And they wanted to set up their head office and they also want an event space because, you know, healthcare. Now, this place was in Bloomsbury and Bloomsbury is not in London, it's not exactly short of a few venues. There's lots of, you know, UCL areas, uh, so as there's the Welcome Trust, a whole load of stuff. There's not only that, there's that thing around in St. Pancras. So, geez, that's what it's called. And so it wasn't exactly an easy place to, to, to go for. Anyhow, we were lucky. We got involved in, in looking at the catering. And luckily, and this is about, sometimes your network really works, doesn't it? So the architect, so normally architects only introduce you into these things like stage two. So that's like the place you get and you get on with it. This architect, because I knew her from a piece of work she did at the BBC, she got us right stage zero from the strategy and we could work with her to define the spaces we need for catering, which was probably the best thing. Anyhow, we managed to design this facility with two kitchens, so it was Brazilian, to cater for multiple functions, mostly focused on the healthcare business because that's general practitioners, obviously. When we were going through our forecast, we, you know, project company come up with forecast, we come up with forecast. We'd also engage with two catering companies and through collaboration and dialogue, we kind of got down to one who was prepared to invest and run the job. And we appointed them a year in advance on the basis that they had the opportunity to get the sales up and running. So by the time they started, they were ready to go in. Of course, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a, a bit of a moving target because the trouble is with new buildings, you know, damn well on the day one, you can't use all the spaces because they haven't finished the job on time. Anyway, yeah, exactly. So we did our forecast and we were all wrong. We were all wrong because they turned out four times what we all forecast because it was properly planned, properly marketed, properly built, properly constructed. And the fact is the GPs had some massive mortgage on the space over 25 years. They paid it off in five. Wow. Okay. So yeah. that was a very good business model as well within their day-to-day -day business model. Yeah, we went back recently to, well, a couple of years ago, both to look at them. the trouble is with the things that go around and around, like the washing machine cycle, they get a bit complacent because they, you know, they know they're going to get business. So stand and start drifting. So we just go and kick the tires and they kind of push it up again. But that's only human nature, isn't it? Let's face yeah. it. And, and in that environment, they need to stay sharp because there's more and more venues popping up in that particular part of the world because they go, well, how come they did it in that environment? We're going to have to go. So I applaud anybody who does it. But the fact is proper planning, engagement, involvement, and don't diss anything. And if it goes wrong, stop and wind back to the point where it's gone wrong and redo it. Because if you just blight, blatantly carry on down a route, it doesn't always work. And I think that is probably my criticism or formulated procurement exercises, because you're locked in, you're locked into a particular point in time. Most of the time, the data is not exactly correct. And you're signing your, you're signing it. You're doing a Faustian pact. Yeah. If you're not careful, sometimes it works. Don't get me wrong, because a lot of companies out there 
who have done very well out of it. But there are times because we have to come and pick up the pieces sometimes. It doesn't work. And then I think that kind of brings us back to the right at the beginning. You asked me about hospital food. It's not always fantastic because of, not because of the food element. It's because of economic and procurement elements that are ideal. Julian, this has been an absolutely eye-opening and a great journey into many aspects of this. And I'm sure there's people out there that think, I want to know more about that. I want to ask Julian a totally different question than Michael did. Where can they find you and connect with you? Where's the best place to go? Well, website, www.nellandavis.com. Our number's on there. I'll give you that. It's 07973 394191. So you can contact me on that one. I have no PAs to block you. Don't worry. LinkedIn is another room, Twitter I use, but LinkedIn's probably better actually. So they, you can get hold of me. It's, uh, I'm around. Absolutely amazing, Julian. Thank you for your time and power and energy to you and the team for the journey ahead, transforming food in, in hospital and beyond. No problem. Thanks. Thanks for your time as well. I really appreciate that you're listening in. So, if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share with others, rate, or give a review, or subscribe to one of our channels, which all can be done via the website, hospitalitymavericks.com. I believe that reading the right books is key to become a better leader. So I've helped you with a curated list of some of the best books to improve yourself, others, and the organization. Find them on hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to BizSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help leaders to become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their socials at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at podcast at bizsimply.com. Thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer from the podcast Collective. If you have any ideas and feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tinkser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be Maverick!